Welcome back to War Machine. What follows is part two of our talk with Federico Campagna. If you haven't already checked out part one, I'd urge you to go do that now. You can follow us on Facebook at War Machine Podcast or on Twitter at War Machine Pod. And yeah, I guess there's really not much else to say other than I hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as I did. Peace. I think here... The, the the reason why I present in part the, my my some of my work in therapeutic terms, okay, is uh, not because I'm a guru or a doctor or anything like that, but because that's part of the nature of philosophy, and also because of political reasons. Because what is a theraps in Greek? Theraps from which therapy means comrade. Therapy is comradeship. Comradeship between people and comradeship between cultural objects and people and people and cultural objects, okay? A book that is not a comrade, that is not a theraps, is useless, is a piece of furniture, a bad piece of furniture, because good pieces of furniture are theraps as well. But, <clears throat> so that's one of the things. And that's, that's also because philosophy itself as an exercise has a particular origin. When we, when we read in Plato and then in Aristotle where philosophy comes from, they both say that philosophy comes from thauma. Thauma usually is translated as awe, wonder, wonders awe. But thauma not, doesn't only mean awe, it means also terror, terror. So the experience of being alive and realizing, for example, that you're a finite being, that you don't see anything, you don't, underst- you don't see everything, you don't understand everything, you're finite and you are towards death, like Heidegger would say. It's a terrifying, terrifying uh, experience. The experience that you don't have control over the forces, not even of your heartbeat, for example. It's a terrifying thing. You, you're killed by parts of your body that you don't have control with. This is thauma, okay? It's incredible that your heart beats when you sleep. It's terrifying that your heart can stop while you're sleeping and you don't know it. Yeah. Philosophy is originated from thauma, from, from the, the terror of being alive. And so philosophy itself does exactly this is is a way of making sense of the world that allows you to live that's why philosophy is the science of all sciences as they used to say and obviously it is because sciences of any of any other kind don't make any sense unless they are for something sciences are not for themselves and so they are for what they are for the human and the human is exactly that person whose first and primary instinct is the fear and trembling, as Heidegger would say, uh, as Kierkegaard would say, of, of finding yourself alive and, and uh, in this thaumatic situation. And so philosophy is the method of catering to that. So that's why, that's why I always uh, insist on this. Now, in terms of how to, to, to synchronize the, the, the kind of like metaphys- metaphysical um, speculation with, with, with everyday life, so to say, First of all, if I knew, I wouldn't have the problems in my life that I have. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I don't know. 
how to do it in the sense I don't have a recipe on, on how to do it. And I, I myself, I know that this is a, a way where at some point there will be the solution. I don't think that I will reach it ever. I don't even know if it's reachable. But I know that this is more or less the direction. So I cannot offer a, a recipe for that. Yeah. What, I, what I can suggest, in a sense, is that in the situation in the in the situation in which we find ourselves as finite being thrown 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 into the world and towards death, so to say, in this particular situation, the the the, the wager, kind of Pascal's wager on God, actually should be put in the other hand. There is a primary trembling and fearful experience that we have often, and people with anxiety experience it more clearly, which is the experience of not existing. This incredible feeling that you often have uh, during a panic attack, that you don't exist, okay? This is the, the, the mother of all, <laughs> or the father of all fears. The, the, the fear that everything you see around you, yourself is an illusion, that you somehow don't exist, that nothing is real. In that sense, the wager really is not whether God exists or not. The, 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 the wager is whether existence exists or not. And your wager is best put on the fact that existence exists. But then from this, everything follows. If existence exists, if this is really real, then you are as real as me. Then you are as ineffably, inexplainably existing as me. Then you are as sacred as me. Then I should treat you as such. And then on the other hand, my own fallibility, my own, finit my own finitude, my own failures and so on are contained within the small kernel of the phenomenal. They don't exhaust everything. They don't say everything about me. My end is not my end because I am not contained within the eye. Yeah. Okay, so you see that these, these are not immediate political statements. As you said, they are pre-political. But it's on the basis of this that you can say that, for example, letting mi migrants drown in the sea or letting migrant children like, die of, 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 of cold in a, in a prison is not only inhumane, which is a moralistic and bigoted, bigoted comment, it's stupid. Is idiotic, more, more specifically, is idiotic. Idios means private, same in Greek. An idiotic person or an idiotic idea is one that is contained entirely within itself, that doesn't see the outside, okay? That is idolatrous within the, the, the finite realm of what they understand. I feel like there's a Descartes critique coming. Well, that was my comment too. I think that Descartes' whole project was his therapeutic relationship to the to the fear that he didn't exist, right? I mean, his might, might have been less existential and more methodical, or at least that's how the writings come across. But his whole project was, okay, well, the world around me is, is shifting and changing. You know, there's kind of a, there's a dramatic philosophical and political, or theological and political shift coming at, you know, through the Renaissance into like maybe the Enlightenment and modernity and all that stuff. But he, then he starts questioning, well, can I, can I, you know, be sure that you exist on the other side of my, you know, my perception, right? When I'm looking at my hands, do they really exist? How do I know when I'm dreaming and when I'm awake? Kind of these kind of, uh, again, these ancient questions that are being re retranslated into, in modernity, right? And so, but that's, to me, that's the question of the panic attack. I don't know if I exist. How can I be sure that, yeah. that, that existence exists, right? And so that yeah. whole methodology is a therapeutic one to get to some sort of foundational thing saying, okay, existence exists, therefore, there, and then you, everything follows afterwards. Yeah, but also here there's an important thing that also you were mentioning earlier when talking politically, which is the, the term belief. And, and I think here is important because then how do you place your, 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 your bet on whether existence exists or not? You can believe, okay? And sometimes when you're having a bad panic attack, for example, you, that, there's also a useful thing. You decide you believe this is all real. You decide you believe you're not dying and so on and so forth. 
okay, that could be a, an emergency solution, which is fine. But more generally, uh, in terms of placing it one, one's entire life on, placing it on belief is a dangerous bet. Because belief is placing it on something of which you basically know entirely nothing. And you, you kind of like, it's an act of the will. You know, it's a, it's a megalomaniac act of the will. Much better is knowing. Place your bet on what you know. And what do you know? Well, here, of course, and, and I will disclose some more references in a moment because I really want to make sure and clarify that the listeners in particular have the opportunity of reading more interesting stuff than what they write. It's... Um, how do you know it? Well, here we have Avicenna, Ibn Sina, Uzbek Persian, depends on who you ask, uh, philosopher of, 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 the, of the, what at the time was the European Middle Ages in Europe, uh, 12th century. Ibn Sina, in, in, a, in a thing called the floating man argument, it's a typical ex thought experiment in philosophy. That was the time, actually, when this happened, which is a fantastic story. That was the time when philosophers were so prized that people would literally kidnap them to have them with them. So even Sina was at the service of, of a nobleman, and he got kidnapped by another nobleman who wanted to have him with him and stuck him into a tower for a while. While he was in this tower, he wrote this little thought experiment called the floating man. The, float, the sort of experiment goes like this. Imagine you are born suddenly, no memories, you don't know anything. Me there. You don't know where you are. With your eyes closed, your mouth closed, your senses are entirely eradicated. Your limbs don't touch each other. You don't have any sensory perception. You don't have any previous knowledge. What do you know? And he said, and actually this is fantastic, this is way before the cut, and maybe even more insightful. He said, what, what do you know? He said, you know that you exist, not that you think. Because if you think, it means that there is already something that does the job of thinking. As Prajapati said to Indra in the Chandogya Upanishad, the Atman is the thing that does the job of thinking. Existence, you know that you exist. So placing your bet on existence is not placing your bet on something you believe in, it's something you know. But that's the foundation of knowledge. True knowledge is of, of the thing that you are. esoterism and exoterism well this goes back this goes to the therapeutic aspect that we were talking about what is the difference between exoterism and esoterism is the, the difference is in the in the first part of the word because there are two particles in in greek two prepositions the one means um, basically one means outside one, one means within in the sense of one means public and one means private so esoterism is a form of private knowledge and exoterism is a form of public knowledge. Now, here we need to be very specific when we think about these words, private and public. Private, as I said earlier, could be understood in Greek as idios, idiotic. So a privacy that is a soliloquy, the isolation of something that believes to be everything, okay? In the, in the, in the specific form in which it, it denominates itself. No, it's not like that. Private, we have to understand in the Greek sense, in the sense of friendship. The privacy of the esoteric discourse is the fact that it is a discourse that is done in friendship, among friends. As Plato would say, 
you always need to rely on the words, the spoken words, the relationship between people when, when, when discussing philosophy rather than the written text, because the written text is alone and not among friends. But when you talk to somebody, you are among friends. So the way of speaking esoterically is the way you would speak to a friend. Okay. Is exoteric discourses, public discourses are entirely different because in the public, there are two abstractions that speak to each other in a non-friendly way. There is the abstraction of the voice, the voice of the author, the voice of public, the voice of the media, the voice of whatever, speaking to the abstraction of the other, the masses, the crowd, the, the market segment. Okay, so this is, a, a, this is the difference between esoteric and exoteric. A knowledge that is not esoteric in the spirit is useless. However, a knowledge that is not exoteric in some elements within the style is deaf, is mute. And that's always been the, a massive problem. Yeah, Big there problem. seems to be a, so, something of a connection that I'm trying to articulate here between the, what you're talking about, the esoteric and know, knowing directly and I guess Gnosticism. And it sort of makes me think of what the relationship may be, and maybe you have some thoughts on this between anarchism and uh, magic, not just in sort of you know the, the metaphysical sense that you've been talking about, but as a <laughs> as a more uh, direct practice. You know, not that magic itself is a practice, but you know what I mean. Like there are perhaps resonances or affinities between ritual magic and anarchism. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm even thinking just like etymologically, like in Gnostic cosmology, you have the, you know, the archons, you know, which are these malicious entities or, or demons or whatever, who are hell bent on preventing humanity from achieving ascension or enlightenment or whatever. And I think that's a really cool connection. I'm just wondering what, what connection do you see there between, between anarchism and magic as, as a practice perhaps? Okay. Well, um, I'm sorry, sometimes I, 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 sometimes I might sound a bit pedantic, but, but I think it's useful in general also for the listeners before um, hearing any of my possible yeah. uninteresting responses, but to, to understand also uh, the wealth that there is within the words that we use. Yeah. So in the sense of magic, it's good to clarify what we mean sometimes. Magic can mean many things. Uh, the way I use it is I, I use it based on the etymology of the word. So of what the word originally is meant to mean, where it comes from the very word, you know, itself. And magic, as I, as I explained in that book, Technical Magic, is the art of the magi, the art of the priests in Persia. But the word is Greek. You know, the Greeks and Persians, of course, uh, were arch enemies for, for centuries until Alexander the Great, and also after, actually. And then the art of the Magi, the art of the priests of the Persians, the Zoroastrian priests, for the Greeks was the art of the other, okay? It was the incomprehensible power, the incomprehensible force. So in that sense, I use magic in the sense of like an idea of a form of uh, thinking about the world and about oneself in general, that is to the mind and to the eye of the contemporary society, it appears as dangerously and radically other as the Magi to the Greeks. Okay, so here I want to specify, because magic has many, many uh, meanings, and just to clarify, it does tend to happen that many of the things that I mentioned when I discuss magic do coincide with what is commonly understood as magic, but not all of them. Um, now, <clears throat> in terms of the relation between magic and anarchism, we, we have to consider this, that 
the, 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 the picture of the cosmology, the cosmology, so the picture of the, of the world that I'm suggesting to consider is, as you were saying earlier, uh, an ecos mythos, is a likely story. Ecos mythos, likely story, is the way in which Plato presents one of his major books, the Timaeus. At the beginning of this incredible picture of cosmology, Plato says, makes one of his characters. Plato is fantastic. <laughs> All his stories are, are the theater plays. Like, I don't think there's ever been, ever after Plato, as fantastic a, a writer in philosophy as, as him. But um, one of the characters says, I'm going to tell you a likely story. And then goes the book. But, um, so the, the likely story that, that I'm telling is the possibility of embracing a form of world-making, which is founded around the central principle. Founded around the central principle doesn't mean that it's necessarily hierarchical, dogmatic, and so on. It means that whenever we sing, we sing to a tone, to a melody, to an intonation. Uh, and that's the way it goes. Okay, then you can pass from another. But I'm suggesting this intonation in the same way that, I don't know, at the beginning of, 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 a, of, a, of a score they suggested which key it, is, it has to be played on or which, which time it has to be played on. And this particular intonation, which I'm suggesting, which says that whenever we construct reality, we understand reality, we should keep in mind that first, the center and the key that gives to us the experience of actually existing and being alive is the ineffability of the existence that speaks within us. The thing that says I, that me, that the ineffable thing is the only thing you can know. And on the basis of that knowledge, you know everything else. And so keeping that in mind, and that thing translates, if that is the case, it applies to you as much as to the other. To the other, to the other, could be human or non-human, but also, importantly, if it applies to the other, whether human or non-human, you as a person are relating to them as a person. Yes. The personality of the other object, the personality of the other person, you both are subjects because you are subjects to being thrown into the world. And you both are objects in the sense that you, you are each other's phenomenal. <laughs> now, from that, of course, there is a political aspect related to this. Because then if we are creating a political system, on what is it based, this political system? If this political system is based on something, as if that thing was the ultimate reality, the nation, the ethnicity, the economy, the proletariat, the, the progressive destinies, tradition, family, okay? If it's based on any of these things, then it is based on something, but that something is, you know it, is not the ultimate foundation of reality. Idolatry, once again, dangerous, because then you enter a dangerous game, because then you completely lose control of the situation. If you rest your case on the ineffable, you rest your case literally on nothing. So your case is rested on an origin that doesn't exist. Of course it exists, but it's beyond what we understand as existing. So you are an anarchy without an origin. You're an anarchist. <laughs> That's why <clears throat> Simon Weil, who is a mystic, is an anarchist. That's why, for example, a lot of Sufi mystics were anarchists. That's why you couldn't describe Taoists in any other way than anarchists. Yeah. And so on and so forth. Yeah, there, does, there does seem to be a creativity at the center of this kind of out of nothing, everything comes, right? <laughs> if you're not allowing your origin story to be kind of totalized, and like this is the true element of reality that we're founding, like whatever it is we're founding upon it, and it's this kind of it's a, it's a, there's a symbol there of the nothing 
that points to ineffably to like an actual existing like story or reality, right? That exists, but there's no way to narrativize it. For me, it, there's an infinite amount of creativity that can come out of that, right? And in a positive way, right? And also, it, it limits the kind of the fascistic elements that can totalize a kind of a, an, an origin story, right? Where it's like, no, this is the truth of, of us. And like, these are the kind of the, the kind of Aryan notions, or this kind of Aryan mythology we have through, you know, 20s and 30s Germany, right? Where like, these is the true like mythical origins of, it, of our story. This yeah. is the kind of the plot and plotment, and this is how we're a continuation of that eschatological vision, right? But if you don't have, if you have like an apophatic or again, ineffable story, you can't do that. Right, so then you're left with, okay, it's it's nothing, but it's there's a there's a an, an infinite amount of creativity that can come out of that. So it's kind of productive. This remind this reminds me a little bit when um, I have a son. He's six year old, and um, he's Arturo, the person to whom all my books have been dedicated, and I think will be dedicated for a while, including the new one that is coming out, Prophetic Culture, which is, for a large to a large extent, on angelology. Actually, he was asking me very much recently. Well, what was there at the beginning of the world? And I was like, well, we don't know, you know, like, we know that like there was a beginning of time, but we don't know what was before the beginning of time. And it was like, what do you mean before the beginning of time? What time was it before the beginning of time? And so we use this little thing in the bathroom. We have you know, a little mantelpiece where you put your toothbrush. And so it's like the length of the mantelpiece is time. So I place the, the toothbrush here. Is it before here or after here? It's before, it's after. And then I took the toothbrush and I put it on the other side of the room. And it's like, now is the toothbrush before or after the last time, it, the last place where it was? That's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it is, it's not abracadabra in the sense of like, I'm making this up. It's just like, it's incommensurable. Measure is measure of something, is one of the faces of things. It's not the thing. There are things that are incommensurable. Measure, measure doesn't include everything. Measure is one of the faces, one of the angelic faces of reality. And that's it. There are extents that are incommensurable. Mm. And understanding that the world is made both of commensurable and incommensurable things, and that depends on the angle of your narration. And your narration would never include the totality because it would disintegrate. Well, there's a, there's a paradigm that that breaks down, right? The paradigm of temporality. And we even have, like, when, we, when you're saying incommensurable or, like, infinite, like the not, the not measurable and the not finite, we don't even have, like, a a way to, to positively assert what it is, right? We could say, well, it's not, it's not temporal, right? And, and that's kind of even like the idea of eternal, eternity, right? It's yeah. like, it's, we can say it's just an infinite amount of like temporal sequences, right? But we really don't know like what that means. Is it, is it duration of temporality? Is it something, yeah, right? The infinite, infinity symbol in the tarot card. Or is it something that's outside of our paradigmatic understandings of, of kind of the worlds we inhabit, right? cognitively and otherwise i mean cognitively definitely but like again that gets back into this this notion of the phenomenon of like i am more than just like my phenomenal aspects right there's an entire infinite amount of being capital b outside of that yeah but this is something very common sense once again we all do basic geometry we learn it in school we teach children geometry very very stable and, and solid thing what is one of the foundations of geometry we tell them that there is a line and a segment and a line is a series of points and there is a point at the beginning of the line. Everything is made of points. Every surface is made of points and like every line. What is a point? Is a dimensionless right. expanse of space. A point is, a, is an expanse of space that has no expanse. It's not expansion. The point has no spatial dimension that is not computable within, within space. 
that we can create geometry. Okay. The same thing with time. What is an instant? Is a durational and extent of time. It's on the basis of the instant that we calculate time. You know, like it's on the basis of that. This is very commonsensical. I mean, here this like, like this is something that Colin Ward, the great anarchist, used to 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 remark all the time when he was saying, Colin Ward, great British anarchist, the, died a few years ago, and he was saying, when people think about anarchism, sometimes they are scared because they think this is very far away alternative thing. They, what they don't understand is anarchism is already the foundation of their society. When you have a group of friends, they are nice to each other and they're friends. That's an anarchist society. When you are with a partner and you are in a good relationship with a partner, that's an anarchist cell. The entirety of society runs on anarchism. Without anarchism, society would collapse. Already now, the capitalism would be impossible uh, and nothing else. And it's the same with, with, the, with ineffability and with magic. These ideas are already, obviously, common sense. Mm -hmm. Well, there's, and that's yeah, it's super cool because we create the stories afterwards, right? Like the, there's a foundationless, like so for, with the idea of friendship, right? We don't have a story going into like how we met, like meeting friends, right? Talking to people. It's like you become friends with somebody because you showed up at the same party or you were at a, you know, you hung out playing sports with somebody or whatever. You become friends and then afterwards the story of yours, yours has come in, right? It's just kind of recursive loop. And so, but it's actually in a sense like built on this anarchy, right? This, this foundationless, obviously there's an interaction, right? But there's also, there's like an internal relationship between this kind of this dimensionless point and also the all the kind of dimensionality that can come out of it that can be may be understood right in temporality so again this gets back to um the platonic ideas right where these things are eternal right these this kind of these forms these, these ideas these the relationships between um between these mathematical relate ratios right are eternal but there's also like a dialectical uh, interplay between the, the foundationlessness and the kind of their, their what can be birthed out of that Absolutely, and I, I apologize. Actually, I didn't respond to that part of your of your of your of what you were saying earlier because that's very very interesting. And yes, absolutely, uh, there is always a, um, within this idea of ineffability, there is language. Like ineffability doesn't mean that we have to be silent. It, it means that we can speak because if there wasn't ineffability, we wouldn't be able to speak. We would be spoken. That's a big difference between speaking and being spoken. If there wasn't ineffability as the foundation, then we wouldn't need to feel the silence. Because if there was already as, as already foundational, the, the presence of sounds as the only thing that exists, then we would seek silence to shield ourselves and to find a space away. But we need to fill the world with narrations because exactly, precisely because you know, reality in itself is chaos. <laughs> as, as every culture has always understood. Precisely because of that, we have to make cosmos so we have to make something beautiful in order. So yes, the, the, the creative part is, is, is fundamental. But where do we learn it from? Is our creative ability something that we have made up because we are humans and we are so clever? <laughs> no. Possibly. In a sense, like, it depends what we understand as humans. But there is also the fact that we might have learned from somebody or from something. From where? From reality itself. Mm -hmm. Because reality itself manifests itself. Each dimension within it the manifests itself to the next, and the other one perceives it. And this is the strange interchange between them, which is of creative listening, more than creative uh, envision, more than creative production. It's a creative listening towards reality. By listening to it in a certain way, we create it. When, for example, Rilke, the great, the great poet, Austrian <coughs> poet, was talking in, uh, in the sonnets to Orpheus, in the very first one, talks about Orpheus. 
um, Greek hero and then God and then the, begin, the, the, the beginner of the Orphic mysteries in Greece, the great singer the, who could make beasts fall asleep and rivers cry and so on with his music. In the sonnets to Orpheus, in the first one, you said, you, Orpheus, surrounded by the animals, made a temple within their hearing. It is in the hearing that, that happens the creative interpretation, the, the creation of things. That's how we, we understand the creative work itself. When we think creatively about um, the world, as in creating new worlds and also presenting to other people, that's the, in contemporary parlance, when we think about creation, we always think about the public that receives the creation. We, we, as cult, as creatives in the sense of people who create, and of course we all do, that's, that's a part of what being alive is. That creation, we, we deduce, we, we originate from, from an act of creating, creative listening, creative listening to reality. So in a sense of approaching the onslaught of raw perceptions that invest us and in our ability of listening to them according to a certain tune, to a certain tone, that changes everything. As we know, a musician listens to the sounds around themselves in a different way of a non-musician. The, the talent of music is, is in listening. Yes. The, the first and foremost. Mm -hmm. And as a musician, when you train, you are taught at the same time as playing the instrument. If you have a good teacher, they teach you how to listen. Yeah. And the same if you are a poet. They usually, if you have a good poetry teacher, they teach you how to listen and so on and so forth. If you are... If you are a, um, an actor, you first understand how to feel and understand your own movements and the way the things are. You listen. The same is with creation, also in the terms of world building. The ability is first and foremost to know things differently, not to believe things different, not to imagine them differently in the sense of inventing them, but to know them differently. Is that possible? Yes. Because the only thing that you truly know at the beginning is the knowledge of pure ineffable existence. The second thing that you know is up to you. Yeah, it's up to you. I like the, I think that's a great place to leave it. Ties in with this whole idea of anarchism as fundamental to existence and the idea of creation or co-creation as the role of the magician. <laughs> yeah. I do think that humanity or species in general are just kind of, we're, we're technology created by re, you know, reality itself, right? Because in a sense, we're, we're a replication, we're a mini cosmos, a microcosmos of like the larger sense of, of reality, in the sense that we're both receptive and creative, right? So we have this kind of feedback loop in, internally, like our organs are receiving, listening to the world around us, right? And, and bringing it in, right? And then there's, like, there's a moment of uh, this black box of magic or creativity that comes out through poetry, music, conversation, right? Just walking around, dancing. And for me, like, I've been thinking about that a lot, a lot lately of how these kind of feedback loops. So we, we get to, like, technology, like, you know, video and audio feedback loops through, like, computers or sound systems and stuff like that. But also human beings, in a sense, are our foundation built upon a feedback loop of perceptivity and, and generativity through communication or or you know, making love or whatever, or you know, drawing drawing a, a picture or painting, and, and then that feeds back into our, our ourselves and like, so there's like there's this creativity and this feedback loop and stuff. And sorry, that's maybe a longer. No, no, absolutely. Yeah, and I think I mean, um, I think on the basis of what we said, also like I, I think we we do share very similar interests. Um, in case you might not have encountered Henri Corbin. Um, he works on that very much, and I think you, you would enjoy also what, uh, as I enjoyed, what, uh, what, he, what, he, what he writes. It's, it's very, very interesting because he, he touches on very, very similar points to the ones that you, 
you talk about it, it discusses them with, with a strange vocabulary, obviously. Yeah. You know, angelology and a lot of other <laughs> things and Tawil, the interpretation, the creative interpretation of the Quran. That's why it talks about Shia Islam so much. Actually, this is actually something really interesting. Um, I think especially for an American audience. I mean, I thought I know that your particular audience is a, is a very um, small and high-cultural uh, <laughs> We're probably a little bit niche. That's okay. No, I know. I understand. But in general, it, it is very interesting because as a southern Italian from Sicily, for us, the Middle East is much closer because mm -hmm. it's on the other side of the sea. And so right. we have more familiarity to that. I understand that on the other side of the ocean, you might feel further away. But it, so it's important to, to, to explain how a lot of the things that I've said now, a lot of these have been explained uh, and expounded and developed and I've learned a lot from Iranian mysticism. So mysticism that comes from that part of Islam that is based in Iran, mm -hmm. in what was known at the time as Persia. I prefer Persia to Iran, to be honest, because or whatever yeah. other name. We run the Aryans. I'm not so sure. Is, an is, that where, is that where Iran comes from? Is that where it comes from? The yeah, Aryans? because the Aryans that were in northern right. India, you know, right. the India, they moved to, the Aryans moved to Iran, <laughs> the land of the Aryans. Yeah. Which, by incidentally, if anybody is an Aryan sympathizing, then I, I, I do hope that they stick with, uh, with the Iranian cause because that's their people, no? Uh, mm. Etymologically. <laughs> But um, but yeah. Anyway, but in that world, Islam, as you know, is divided into two big sections, and one right. is Sunnism, one is Shiism. The original difference had to do with dynastic and uh, succession to the prophets, basically. The fourth caliphate. Yes, and then but the, the caliphate, division yeah. then became philosophically very very wide. To the point that Shiism is let's say similar to Catholicism, while Sunnism is often similar to Protestantism. So the Shia have a much more fluid relationship with images, with saints, with the embodiment, the creative embodiment of of, um, of the images. Yeah. And um, and as I have to say, interestingly, uh, considering that I <laughs> that I focus so much of the on the ineffable and the invisibility, right. I am a Catholic. I have become a Catholic recently, um, very recently, actually, just a few, years, very few years ago. And yeah. um, also, actually, this is the first time I talk about it with um, <laughs> a non-private environment about this. I don't usually talk about it. But this is this is exoteric. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the the reason is also this because it's also one of the things that you were saying in the sense that like. Once you have an intuition, a philosophical intuition, a kind of like non-confessional philosophical intuition that there is within reality an ineffable dimension that within reality that your range of perception does not exhaust everything, but that there is more beyond and you have to have a relationship with this beyond. Then at that point, okay, you start having an open question, but then you also realize that somehow in order to pursue within your inquiry, you need to go some way. Let's say that you're realized in, in a big bank of fog, uh, one day in the middle of the path of my life, as, I, as Dante used to put it, no? You realize that you find yourself lost in a, in a dark woods. And then you find at some point that in the middle of the fog, you realize that there's paths, a series of paths going up on a mountain. And you realize that there is a mountain above the fog. And you cannot see it, but it's there. You have to reach the peak. Now, the, the next step is, which path do you take? The important thing is that whichever path you take, first, you remember there is only a path and there's a lot of other paths and they all get to the top. Right. Secondly, if you actually want to reach it, stick with one. Right. Yeah. Whichever. And in that case, I have chosen Catholicism because it was the closest to me, because I was raised in Italy and, and right. I had that kind of particular sensibility, but also because 
in terms of the images that you were suggesting, to my personal sensitivity, it seemed to me, to my sensitivity, that the relationship with the images that there is in Catholicism is a relationship of love for the appearances and of, in, of indulgence and forgiveness. Yeah. The fact that there is an element within the world that is not false, but is not true, and yet that is real. Okay, yeah. that even though it's not true in the sen- or semiotically, it is real and is deserving of love, and this realm is the images. Yeah. Okay, and I think uh, to my sensitivity in, in Protestantism, I did not find that. I found yeah. a much more stern approach. And Henri Corbin himself actually talk, often talks about the danger of Tashbi and Tanzi, so having a, an, an approach that is too, too, too much towards the ineffable or too much towards the images. To my sensitivity, it seemed that Catholicism, for, for my experience, was a good way. But when reading Pavel Florensky, which I recommend wholeheartedly to everybody, um, who is an Orthodox priest then, uh, of Orthodox Christianity, then I realized that other paths uh, have, uh, have a similar and even more daring. And then when I read Suravardi or Mullah Sadra, Shia Islam, I'm like, okay, this is. And then when I read Adi Shankara, Advaita Vedanta, and then when I read the cosmology of Amerindian tribes, as explained by Eduardo Viveros de Castro, when I read Chan Buddhism from Northeast China, you see, like, there is certain types of sensitivities. Which one of these paths you take? The important thing is that you know it's only one path and you know right. the other. But then if you want to walk it, just yeah. pick one. Yeah. to keep talking to you but um yeah. i gotta go get my son uh from my oh, mom's nice. house who lives who lives nearby but um, how old is your son he's uh he just turned four on october october 1st we we share uh, a birthday oh wow october 1st. yeah wow. so i turned 43 he turned four um, so you no longer have a birthday basically I, you know, I had sort of given up on my birthday <laughs> a, a while back. So this sort of like has, has breathed some new set of sort of vitality and um, joy into that day, which is otherwise was just like, ah, whatever, I'm still here. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, it's, uh, yeah, having a kid is quite nice, actually, in a way. And um, your son, a- your son, Arturo, how old is he? Six. Ah, oh, beautiful. How's, how's fatherhood treating you? It's, it's a strange mix between a, a, a miracle and a Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I can totally relate to that. Usually, my response is, is uh, he's he's a um, it's a source of infinite joy and frustration. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's. I remember talking to my father, who was um, oh, who is actually, <laughs> thank God, he's still alive, and. Um, who is, who, who, but he was actually, he was a revolutionary communist in the, in, in the in earlier part of his life, especially during the 70s and the 80s, and then became a social and democratic person. But, um, but I, and I was, of course, you know, a revolutionary anarchist, and um, I'm more an insurrectionist now. But I remember at the time, talking to him, it's like, remember the, first, the real revolution in your life is when you have a kid. And I meant, ex- and I realized exactly what he meant, what I thought, at the time was that I was going to be part of the Bolsheviks storming the Winter Palace. What I realized is that I was the Winter Palace. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and it's like, and the revolution, 
you know, took over me completely. <laughs> yeah, <it> was, <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, Matt and I have a, Matt and I have a mutual friend, Barry Taylor, who's actually in London. He's a kind of radical theologian and stuff. There's a lot of the, uh, kind of post-death of God theology and stuff. Anyway, he, he moved back to London after 30 years in LA, but he has this, he, I think he got it from Picasso. I can't remember this quote about like, um, if you really want to honor your grandfathers, uh, don't wear your grandfather's hat, but have a child, have a, you know, have your own kid. And this idea of like, you know what I mean? Like there's a way of like, honoring the the past by creating the future in a way and i think like for me like when you guys are talking about that stuff with having kids that's what came to my mind like you know what i mean yeah. a real revolutionary is like having a child and trying to raise a child i guess you know it's like no, especially, especially these days i mean you know like what <laughs> what what other ultimate act of faith in the future is there than having a child <laughs> but, but i have to say in a way like also when, when having a kid i realized that like there's a special care that i was giving to my kids it was mm. only specific to my kid i wouldn't have done if i if it hadn't been somehow chosen to me as a kid as a father by the way incidentally everybody knows it as a father we choose our children we don't make children the mother makes the children the father doesn't know who this person is. Couldn't even be your son biologically, but that doesn't matter. Fatherhood is about choosing. <laughs> it's not, you know what I mean? It, that's a beautiful, creative aspect of it. It's unconditional love, regardless of the biological link. And I realized when, when I did it with, with, uh, with my son, is um, that I was doing the same things that I was doing with other people, just more. And in a sense, like the, 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 the parenthood is uh, extends already. Like you don't necessarily physically have, need to have a kid to have a, the experience of, of parenthood in a sense it's just a way it's just a way of treating things that having a kid just reminds you very much you know, <laughs> yeah. it's a monastic rule of remind or reminding yeah <laughs> i don't know about you know being a being a priest or a you know a minister is kind of like being a, a parental figure right yeah. for, for a, a community yeah. of a community of your children so to speak yeah well you know i was like literally racked with anxiety and terror about being a father um when monique was uh was pregnant, um, sort of just felt the weight of the responsibility, you know, because I know what a father can mean to a to a son. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And how that can go wrong. And uh, I was like, man, I'm gonna fuck this up. And then he came along, and I, he he came along, and I was just like, oh, this is actually the easiest thing in the world. All I have to do is love him. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's not that fucking complicated, honestly. I, th- I think a second part, unfortunately, which is more difficult, which is you have to keep him having a father. I, you have to avoid self-destructing. Mm. <laughs> that's, that's difficult. Balancing the two, <laughs> I find complicated. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to uh, to chat with us. It's been a fantastic conversation. It's been a great pleasure, and um, I, I am so pleased because, like, I, I I didn't know you guys, so I, I I try always to say yes whenever I can, just because we because it's nice to hear a yes in general. So that's it. Sure. But I am very very happy that um, that it's been you. Cool. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Really Thank appreciate you very much. it. I mean, have a good night. Yeah. Take care. Bye. All right. Good night. Thanks again to Federico, and thanks to you for listening. Theme music was provided by Nikki Nine. You can check out his Bandcamp in the show notes. Outro music, graphic, 
and audio design by Matt Baker. And we'll see you next time. Peace.